Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Yan, the producer with our host, Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. I'm here with Dina Brodsky and our special guest today, Julian Davis, oil painter originally from London. Right, Julian? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Julian, thank you so much for being here. And for those of you who don't know Julian's work, so he's an artist, he's a professor, he's an author who has recently published his first book, which sounds absolutely fascinating. And what he's known for is his paintings of the vanishing American South, but I feel like he's painted just about everything else as well. So yeah, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. I would say, sadly, I'm not um, actually a professor. I never got qualified fully enough to teach. Um, I just, I have a, what is it? A a Bachelor of Arts in painting and printmaking. So actually that was, it was interesting when I first came to the States, the fact that I wasn't able to teach uh, kind of determined, determined my path as an artist. Yeah, but I do like being called professor, so feel free. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can just call you Professor Davis. Yeah, for, yeah. okay, yeah, it's good, yeah. For the duration of this podcast. Yeah. yeah, well, that's, I mean, total side note, I because I, I, I teach it, and I'm wondering, in in London, can you teach with a bachelor in art there? No, that's a good question. Um, no, uh, you can't. You have to have a master's. You have to have a yeah. master's. Okay. Yeah. And I think also a teaching diploma. I think you can be a visiting artist at a, an art school. Uh, okay. You can do that, but you couldn't get tenure. No. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, because here there's like loopholes with like, private schools and adjunct positions and stuff like right, that. Oh, right. that masters, you'll never really get a higher position. You know? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, Marshall, I feel like you teach all over the city. Yeah. Like, what, what kind of degree do you have? <laughs> I don't have any, man. <laughs> so you're, you're visiting a lecturer. Yeah, that's the great. Yeah. the loopholes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Marshall is the loophole. I, I, like, <laughs> like you, you probably teach in every single academic institution in New York. That's very good. Yeah, wow, I envy it. Loopholes. Yeah, <laughs> I've always, I've always envied. I've, I've sort of studied you guys. You know, I'm down here in the, in the south, and um, I've always studied the sort of artistic community there in New York and also in uh, Philadelphia, and thought, you know, what a fantastic community of painters you've got there. Um, I mean, we have, we have a great community here, but it's not quite as dense and intense as it seems to be up there. So tell us how you, because I'm from the South, I'm originally from Atlanta. Oh, right. Okay. And how did you, from London to Alabama, how did this happen? How did... Well, I, uh, I graduated in 88. Um, I, I graduated the exact same year as Damien Hurst and a, a number of those artists. And I, I hadn't had a great uh, time at art school. I'd had a hard time getting into art schools, actually. Um, so I was a little bit skeptical, and I decided to go on a traveling trip, and I found an old book on uh, the history of Alabama. And there was a weird chapter on Napoleonic exiles settling a, a vine and olive colony. 
uh, after Napoleon was defeated. So I thought, I thought that would be the focus of my trip. So I was sort of pretending to be a writer. I went to, uh, I came over to New York, went to the New York Public Library, and then went down to the Library of Congress, and um, slowly made my way down to Alabama. I, I did. I wasn't able. I wasn't driving at the time, so it's all on Greyhound bus, and uh, I ended up um, basically staying in the South. I mean, it was accidental. I was only supposed to be here for three months, but wow. it's but it's it's been thirty thirty five years. So that's wow. how I got it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, for you, you were you were just saying that you were having a hard time getting into art school and kind of skeptical of of the whole enterprise. Were you skeptical of art school or of painting? What brought you to art school to begin with? Well, yes. Let's go all the way back. Let's go all the way back. Yeah, that was that was a good lesson for me. Um, I I was one of those you know the arts the kid in in high school who was the artist. You know, I mean that, that was I was known as you know the art kid, and um, uh, I applied after high school for a, a foundation course, which is a one-year course you have to do in the UK. And I was rejected from the first five places. So at the very end, the last chance I got into somewhere. And the same thing happened the next year, trying to get into art school. And uh, I think it was a great lesson for me, actually. I, it, it really toughened me up, you know. Um, and but I will say, I think I was probably in art school. I might... I've got a little uh, bloody-minded about that, a little bit stubborn, you know. Um, and so, I, you know, I was studying printmaking and I wasn't great at uh, following any advice. You know, and now I look back, I realise my, my uh, teachers were, were, were offering me very good advice, but I was a bit bloody-minded. So, so yeah, um, I, I don't know. Overall, I think it was a good lesson. Um, uh, certainly, after that rejection, never bothered me at all. So and the art, the art life, as we know, is full of rejections. So full of it. Packed. Yeah, <laughs> I I have a file of about two hundred and fifty rejection letters from galleries. You know. Do you really? You save yeah, them? I saved them all. Yeah, yeah. I thought I would be able one day. My plan was one day to become you know, famous and uh, then call them all up. <laughs> uh, but most of them have gone out of business. You <laughs> <laughs> outlived them. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that could be like a postmodernist book that you publish. Yes, yeah, yeah. Professor Professor Davis's rejection letters. That's right. Yes, exactly. Back then they were polite enough to write. Now now I think people send off emails, you know, you never hear anything. But, uh, but, but there's quite nice little letters. No. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who uh, he taught at the Art Students League. His name is slipping my mind. He also taught at Yale. Gosh. And he said something to me. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. Maybe I'll, I'll remember it later. But he said, if you're not getting two rejections a week, you're not applying to enough things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite one, I've got a little postcard from Ivan Karp, and he and his brother had a gallery, O.K. Harris Gallery. Do you, sure. do you remember that? Yeah. Yep. And that would have been my big break. And <laughs> being me, I was just bloody-minded about it. He's, I'd sent him some slides, and there were two, um, two slides of paintings of sort of old rundown motels in the winter with sort of snow around the swimming pools and things like that. And I... Um, he said, uh, if you can do 20 of these, we'll give you a show. 
And I, I said, no, I don't, you know, I don't want to paint 20 pictures of motels. <laughs> that was the end of my career as a photorealist. So, yeah. Um, so you, you turned down, I mean, that, that takes a lot of courage to turn down a big opportunity like that because you, you knew, would you say it was because you knew uh, the work wouldn't be authentic if you did 20 of them? Um, well, that was part of it. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I didn't want. Also, I didn't want to get pigeonholed for the rest of my life as a sort of photorealist doing motels in the winter. Um, I probably was stupid enough to think that another chance like that would come along, <laughs> but it didn't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I didn't want to get pigeonholed. Um, that seemed because I know you know that that particularly back then those photorealists they really are that each one has a thing. You know, the guy, was it McLean who did the racehorses and uh, um, the woman who did the gumball machines? And, uh, those, yeah, each one had a, a thing they focused on. And they didn't sure. Watch yeah, you're, you're better off for not, I mean, because so many people get, you know, like I'm thinking the guy who does the candy bars and the racks or, you know, certainly more famously the Texaco stations and stuff. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's a you get locked in quick. Well, it's a, it's a mentality, isn't it? There's a guy Rod Penner. Do you know his work? Uh, yeah, I mean, so he's he's actually exactly what you're talking about. Rod Penner does uh, motels in like abandoned motels in winters and kind of rundown yeah. looking yeah. parts of yes. parts of America. Yes, I got a catalog of his, and I I just I was so relieved that he's out there in the world because the moment I saw that work, which is tiny. And it's exquisite. I mean, it's tiny, tiny. I've seen them. I had like a little side gig for my Zell Gallery, which which is one of the places he works with. So I'd see them in person. Yes, yeah. And uh, I think online they're kind of bland, but when you see them, they're almost these little beautiful jewels. And like, he loves it. Like, yes. Like, like his oh, heart yes. is there. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. They're beautiful. And I just thought, thank God someone's doing that because I can just totally loosen up. You know, because a, a lot of my work is very similar in subject matter. But I thought, this is great, you know, compared to this guy, I'm an expressionist. But I bet, I bet they are beautiful in person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they are, but I think it's because he probably doesn't get bored and he doesn't feel like he wants to be the hotel guy. That, that's a very interesting point because that's something I, I think about with looking at artists on Instagram is that there are certainly people well-suited to painstaking work, you know, for their entire lives. And he would certainly fit that category. Um, and I, I just worry a little for people who uh, are not suited for 60 years of doing the same painting, you know, um, it's something I, I bear in mind a lot. <laughs> you know, so I, I actually have this fear that so I'm someone suited for small painstaking work. My subject matter changes, but I'm, you know, suited towards this kind of obsessive yeah. compulsive miniature stuff. And I'm terrified that once my eyesight starts, you know, to go just even a tiny little bit, I won't be able to do it anymore. And then I'll be completely lost in the universe. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, you could slowly move to bigger things, like more abstract things. That's my plan. My, my eyesight is terrible, so I certainly plan to uh, loosen up in time or become a sculptor or something. Yeah. So, Julian, what was it like? Because you were uh, in that era of YBAs in London. What yes. Was, and it feels like, in a way, like the, the way you handled the, the OK Harris opportunity, you, there's a bit of a, 
uh, protectiveness of what you know that you want to do, almost a rebellious streak. And yes. it feels like you are, you know, your vision certainly doesn't seem to line up with the YBAs. What was that? No, no, thank God. That was, I, that's why I say I've been very lucky, very lucky. That, to go to Alabama sounds crazy, but that, at that time was so fortunate because uh, I happened to meet some collectors there and uh, a guy who had a wonderful gallery that showed uh, representational painting. And so there was a community of collectors. There was an audience. Um, And if I'd stayed in England, I think a lot of painters like myself, my work, the work I'd done in art school was uh, representational, but um, more sort of expressionistic you know, influenced by people like Beckman and Bonnard, those two huge shows of their work in London in the 80s. And, uh, but that had come to an end. And so people who wanted to paint, uh, I don't think they've fared very well, actually, in England, because the YBA thing was so strong. Yeah. Uh, painting really took a hit. Um, so it was just fortunate for me to be in the States. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. We, we we talked to Justin Mortimer at one point. He was saying about the same thing, like just the technical craft of painting really dipped in in London, you know. And that was yes, so- yes, yeah. He's a great painter. Yeah, um, yes, that's interesting. Uh, it's funny because England's it's always uh, emphasizing this um, conceptual side to painting, but but of course, all, all our top-selling painters, our top-selling artists are all painters. You know, all the, the British, the big, the heavy hitters, you know, whether it's Peter Doig or Howard Hodgkin or, you know, certainly Lucien Freud and Francis Bacon. It's, you know, the top-tier artists at the auction houses from London are all painters. That's know? true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So what happened in Alabama? Like, do you have a moment of deciding to stay or was it just stay for one more month, see what happens, make one more painting? Well, I got there and of course, you know, I met my uh, wife. So that's what happened. So I ended up getting married and that's what sort of brought me to the South. But I did also find this very um, supportive group of of painters. You know, it was actually, interestingly, because this is Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which, you know, is kind of, out there but it was um it was that crowd of painters uh who had uh, american painters in florence in the 70s and 80s and they all showed at this gallery which was okay yeah um yes there is his name's escaping me i believe around tuscaloosa so this exquisite like landscape painter doing kind of like um you know, sort of the the moss and the the swamps. Who is is uh, who? I don't know. It's going to be hard to ask you who that who's in my head right now. Right. Yeah. It, it, I'm not sure. Coming to mind and really strong painting out of yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Um, now, most of the painters at this gallery uh, were actually up in upstate New York, um, but they a lot of them had gone over to Florence and you know followed that. That line of artists, you know, have studied under Anagoni and uh, okay. that that whole crowd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 
Okay, so you stayed. And um, so I feel like I first found your paintings um, when I was looking for other people who may or may not have been breaking into abandoned buildings. Right. And somehow that was how I stumbled on your work. Right. In fact, I mean, there was these kind of beautiful atmospheric paintings of kind of deteriorating houses, maybe some of the mansions. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Were you in fact breaking into abandoned buildings? And how how did all of that start? I did occasionally, you know, st- uh, go onto private property, yeah, and tra- trespass a little. Um, not really, well, as, yes, places that sometimes were not accessible, yeah. Um, it was, you know, and that, that was, I learned, uh, for one thing, to work from photographs uh, in that case, you know, because you don't want to set up an easel. Um, when someone's going to come out with a gun. So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, yes, yeah, so I sort of, when I first came to the South, what I did uh, was, uh, there was a, a real audience for the paintings I'd done of England, the English landscape. People, you know, responded to that, paintings of France and so on. So, so what I would do is um, divide my day between, you know, half the day painting what I would sort of call my pot boilers, things that, things that I enjoyed painting, but also taught me how to paint. And then the rest of the time, I was doing these sort of Edward Hopper type things, which initially didn't sell, but I would slowly add them to shows and slowly I became known for that work instead. Do you feel like just by exposing your audience to something, they eventually get used to it and start to like it? Yes, I think so. It's just very slow, you know, it's, uh, but I, I've always thought it's quite a good thing in a show to have work that's, you know, a, a good variety of work, different sizes, and people tend to, but then they're more likely to buy the, the, the piece of work that's kind of the outsider of the group, you know. They kind of bounce off everything and buy the one that stands out as odd, different, yeah. Um, but I think that that's... Um, I've, I've had a couple of sort of apprentices in the past years, and that's been the piece of advice I've given them, as, you know, as, the, as options to sort of be able to pay the bills, pay the rent, you know, um, is to find something that you really love doing that is going to sell. And then, you know, then you can risk, you know. To me, those are the two options, the, the two best options for artists. One is to teach art, and the other is to, you know, find, you know, hopefully find something you love doing that actually sells, you know. That's great advice to sort of like kind of work a few angles, right? Like take the idea that if you like painting this thing, maybe you won't find the growth in painting that one thing over and over again that artists are always craving, but it can kind of keep the engine running while and give you time to explore other things, you know? Exactly, yeah. It's exactly. such great advice for people. Yeah. So me and Marshall met at this job where we're both studio assistants and, you know, we're sort of making someone else's work for him. And I still, I think people had various levels of joy versus frustration with that job. But, but I've actually always just figured it was better to be painting something rather than be making a living, you know, not painting. Yes. Well, I think it's, it really helps to be based in the studio. I mean, that's, that's the, only, the only thing I find with, uh, you know, lots of my friends uh, teach. And that's the only thing is it is kind of exhausting, you know, the, the, the politics and the, 
that that kind of takes the energy out. So getting back to the studio is, you know, it's it's hard to just, you know, if you can find a way. I have a friend, for example, who's a successful artist, but he uh, he just does a lot of framing for other artists, um, just as a way to stay in his studio and have busy work to do, you know, so that he's not always, he's got some kind of work where he can just relax and listen to podcasts and, you know, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's like, it's kind of the trick that every, you know, most of our listeners are trying to pull off. Like, how do you, and I don't even find it terribly cynical or, um, wrong-headed it's just trying to develop yourself pay the rent and do the work you want to do you know? yes and, yes and how, how did you manage to pull that trick off well i think uh, i hope it wasn't i mean it's i hope the same kind of luck could apply to your you know younger listeners um i, I think one thing that really helped was finding this these communities you know um First of all, in, in uh, Alabama and then in North Carolina, just to find people. Uh, you know, so I, I was in small towns or small cities and able to find that 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 body of people. Um, yeah, that that's that's one thing. Um, it's also, as I say, just being prepared to to find a kind of middle ground. I I would you know when I did the work in. in the half of the day when I was just doing my own work, I could be as experimental as I wanted and really, really push things. I'd, most of that work I kept, you know, for myself because it was so experimental. Um, I would say one lesson I learned is to be very careful. If you ever make a transition, you know, you don't want to do it suddenly. That's, I've made that mistake. That's, that's sort of like Dylan going electric. You know, it's like you've got to be really careful. <laughs> Not to in any way make your collectors think you don't you don't love your previous work, you know. So. Someone in the crowd will yell Judas at you. That's you right. Know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's a slow thing. But I, you know, it was when I was in art school, that was the. the I, I, I hope one of your guests made this point that you can't make a living from art, and I just don't think that's fair to say to people. I, I got a lot of that when I was leaving art school. They basically said it's not it's not viable. You know, you need to go back and do a master's and you know get back into the system. Um, and I don't think that's that's true. You know, I think it it is possible. I think it's the, the trick is to, uh, like I say, but price your work. You know, not, not overprice it early on. Just slowly build that community. But you know, I think it's still a, a viable thing. And I think actually social media can help with that, you know? Yeah. I think that's smart. The pricing of your work low. I mean, it's yeah. actually good we're talking about this because we haven't talked about this stuff much on the show, but it's like, I, th I always thought just if you made it in your learning, you're developing these skills, you can get it out of the studio. You got a little change in your pocket. It doesn't have to be much. And then it's like everything, it or somewhat everything, is sold. And there's something desirable about that. Even to someone asking, "Hey, is this one available?" It's like, "No, that's sold. That's sold." And it's it's just, uh, an, I don't know. It always felt like it's 
a little bit of a better position to be in than having, oh gosh, I went to this uh, a club a few nights ago, an art club, and there was student work on the walls there that was blowing my mind. It was like $10,000, you know? Yes, for, yes, yes. No one's going to buy it. It's just going to sit in your studio. And I know someone who sent work to that show. And, and, uh, oh, they, for that exact show? Yeah. For that very mind. show, yeah. Yeah. Because I was there and I was like, look, these... These kids are gonna, they're gonna come home with this painting. It's not going anywhere. Yes. And it's like, what's the point of that? I yes. mean, it's it just does it's not good. Like keep your I don't know, Marshall. They're doing it on I mean, you they're doing it on purpose. Those prices are well thought out. Yeah. Well, there is a there is a hierarchy of pricing for sure. And it's it's tricky. I think, yes, it's very important to sell a good bit of work and slowly build it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a good thing to do. It, you know, makes, I've always said to, you know, young, young artists, if you can make what a, a plumber is making, well, not even a plumber, you know, a carpenter is making, you're doing fine. Absolutely. You know, as an hourly rate. I mean, you're getting to do what you love. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and making connections, building collector base, all that kind of stuff is yes, important. yes, yes. And and talking about that, actually, that, the, 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 that's something else. I, I do think um, you know. I, I hear sometimes artists saying that you know the creative process should be agonizing and you know painful, <laughs> and I I don't really buy into that. I you know I think I, there, there are some art you know I think about some writers like Flaubert or Hemingway for them writing was kind of agony, but I mean generally I think that's an excuse used by people who are you know they're covering a little bit you know they're they're, they're hiding something. Actually, yes, I feel like sometimes it's an excuse for people who are drinking or otherwise self medicating a lot. Yes, yes, yeah. Just like, well, I need to drink in order to paint because painting is such agony and I can't yeah. possibly do it sober. I I have this sort of this is a very unromantic kind of notion of mine, but I feel like all those amazing painters who painted while drunk high and addicted yeah. to things. Yeah. made those amazing paintings despite the fact that they were yes. drunk high and addicted, not because they were. That's right. Well, I think when you paint, you know, that's the thing. If you're painting properly and there's, you, you know, the English philosopher, Colin Wilson. Uh, yeah. So he talked about the peak experience, which is these moments of intense joy, you know, uh, that, that happen in life. And he studied that through something. I mean, God, he wrote something like 120 books. Um, over his career, but that was his obsession is because he suffered from depression, which is sort of the, the opposite of the peak experience. And, you know, often people who have high, that high have that low, like the romantic poets or whatever. But he, he, he basically discovered that you could create the peak experience through intense concentration. Like, like if you were intensely focused on the moment, you would get this incredible high which is one reason I think that it's, it's ridiculous to say that artists should not be enjoying the process of creating. You know, I, I think saying that art should be agony is the sort of thing Salieri would have said about Mozart. is one, one of his excuses, <laughs> like, why does this little bastard make such great music? You know, you're not supposed to enjoy yourself. But I think 
There's this idea that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And I probably disagree with that too. Like that's probably too much. Like no one owes us happiness, right? No one owes us anything. But I feel like just like work, like study, which is what painting is really. Yeah. Yeah. It could bring you an enormous amount of joy sometimes. And not every day has to be a good day. But I feel like some days have, oh, yes, have to be good days in order for you to keep doing it. Absolutely. I think, I think, I mean, even with, you know, very detailed, even when I was doing sort of photorealist work, which is, you know, it's, there's a bit, a bit of a system to it and it's a lot of, you know, fiddly work. And um, if you really concentrate in the right way, it's extremely pleasant. If, if, it's, if it's done the right way, if you're in the painting, if you're thinking, oh God, I've got to paint this damn sky, the white blue, you know, then it's not, yeah, it's not much fun. Yeah, you know, I wonder if the, what draws people to painting, because um, at this point, I don't know, Dina, we've talked to so many artists and teaching so many artists, been in so many schools and stuff like that. I find something unique and beautiful about painters. And I think it's because, and this applies to the misery conversation, I don't find it so prevalent in painters that, because I think they, the payoff just isn't that great. You know, no matter how hard you paint, you're never going to be Brad Pitt or a household name. Yeah. <laughs> it's celebrated and famous yeah. and that people really want to be that person. I mean, Francis Bacon was a great painter, but I don't think anyone's like, I want to be Francis Bacon. No, you know? no, it's right, just yeah. like, well, I could do something like that. And I think it attracts a certain uh, type of person who maybe they're, you know, what a crazy thing to say, but their heart could be in the right place. It's like a pursuit of knowledge and internal things and skill base that doesn't seem to be just fame, like a lot of, that might turn people miserable, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a pursuit of something that is probably not going to lead to an enormous amount of, you know, financial or social reward. But that that being said, though, I actually feel like I think we would never tell a doctor that they shouldn't expect to make a living after, you know, after med school. Yeah. Like saying that you can't make a living at this, maybe you won't have Brad Pitt kind of money. Yeah. But I actually feel like it's totally reasonable to expect that if you spend a lot of your time, love energy, skill, et cetera, doing something, um, you, you should be able to make a living at it. It's, it's not that t- even idea. No. no, I think it's, well, I mean, I've, I've been able to, you know, I, I, I think that's, I've always pushed that, uh, you know, talking to, as I say, young artists. I mean, it, it is feasible to do it. You know, I have a, uh, a one apprentice who's, you know, he started with me, he came straight out of um, high school. He was 18. And, um, and now he's, he's selling all, everything he paints. You know, he, um, I just said, you know, you probably want to paint a few things that are going to appeal, have a, have a good, a lot of appeal. What, what do you want to paint that is likely to sell, you know? So he, he's just, he was like a sponge. He learned, you know, he took on everything and he's, he's doing fine. Um, I think, again, this is the trick. The trick is to not, you know, it's, it can be hard if you move to somewhere like London 
then it gets more difficult, you know. Um, I, th- I think you were speaking to um, Alex Konevsky, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and you see they moved to North uh, New Hampshire because yep. that makes it viable yeah. to be a painter. Um, so that's, that's, you know, that's something to consider. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so true. And, and I think about that interview sometimes. They said something, like, because I feel like they could, you know, they're both doing pretty well. Yeah. They could probably afford to live in New York if they really wanted to. There's something either him or Hollis said, where they said that if you, when you're sort of like young and just hungry for whatever it is, like you're, you're yeah. hungry for experiences, you, you move to New York or you want to be in a big city where you can kind of like eat all that up. Yeah. And they're at the age where they just want to make stuff and they want to be like, and New Hampshire allows them to spend all of their time making stuff, which yes, is all they exactly. want right now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, that's, that's been my sort of thing um, here in the South. I mean, Asheville now is absolutely full of artists. When I first got here, it was, it was an art town, but now it is packed. I mean, unbelievable. There are probably, uh, there's an area of the River Arts District, and I was just looking at, there's two or three art magazines. There were probably 400 artists now, and they're building, converting more studios. That's 400 studios or something. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. So the competition is getting steeper and steeper, you know, this is the catch. When you have that, that density, suddenly, you know, the tourists stop, actually sort of stop buying the art, you know, because they, where, where would you buy a piece of art at the beginning of the afternoon or on the second day or third day of visiting studios, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Do, do you know Nick Reynolds? I do. I do know Nick. Yes. Spoke to him yesterday. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. He's in Asheville. Yeah. He's, he, I, I could see you guys, uh, paintings getting along with each other. That yeah. Yeah. Vibes. He's great. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we're so, I think maybe both me and Marshall are so New York centered and I, I don't even live there anymore. And I'm still yeah. kind of, I still think of most of the art things in my life as, as happening in New York. Yes. Really, you're right. There's so many places and um, so many galleries. And so I, I think a lot of them are probably more open to representational stuff. Than your yeah. memories are. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Do you actually think not ending up in OK Harris and you know, kind of being a New York artist helped you sort of thrive now? I that's a, yes, I do actually. I think um, it, it allowed me to keep um, experimenting and and, and tra- changing things. Um, one thing I try to do is, uh, you know, I sort of try and create my own sort of algorithms you know, as, a, as to, to keep my art going for a lifetime, you know, I, I find different ways to um, find inspiration, like, you know, old book, old bookstores, junk stores, traveling, you know, I'll pick these odd, I just went out to Colorado through the Dust Bowl and just deliberately got lost and, you know, found different places, and went, just used old books to plan my trip. Oh. Um, so I think that kind of evolution of my work would not have happened. For sure. I think that, unfortunately, the bigger and more established the gallery you're in, the more likely you are to be pigeonholed and, and sort of kind of told what to do, you know, really. Uh, once, once the, you know, if you, if you get 
to where your prices are very big, you know, I think uh, I think the, the the art world steps in and kind of de- determines your your path more than you might like. What do you think draws you to representational work? Ah, um, I think that, yes, that's great. Um, I sort of feel that I've always wanted to be more of an expressionistic painter. As I say, I, um, when I was in art school, it was very, very like people like Max Beckman. Um, I tend to, because I want a full range uh, to be able to paint things like interiors and uh, the landscape and also these narrative paintings. I've, I've sort of settled on a style that's as painterly, uh, it's painterly, but it's able to describe very particular things. Do you see what I mean? So if, if you get too expressionistic, you can't, um, you can't describe certain, certain things. Like if I say Van Gogh would have trouble painting frost you know mm. what i mean you know what i mean so mm-hmm. so if you get very and it was a great piece of advice i got in art school which i as i say i was probably a pain in the neck so i, I totally ignored it it was an excellent piece of advice but the the teacher said if you're i was doing these weird narrative paintings based on sea shanties and yeah. and i was painting this uh, scrimshaw which is those whale's teeth that, that are inscribed with a sharp pen and then you rub ink into the the drawing i know those yeah 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 so i was drawing that and i was doing it in sort of the style of soutine you know james james <laughs> and and he said uh, i don't know what you're painting he said i said well I'm, it's a scrimshaw and that's like a you know a sailor and that's like a mermaid and he said well i can't tell he said so you're gonna have to tighten up the way you work to to uh to successfully speak to your audience and mm. years later i thought yeah you're completely right and uh yeah it's great great piece of advice yeah so so that's mainly the reason i'm kind of a uh, you know a pretty not, not an extreme realist but uh, especially now but uh, it's it's more representational than probably i dream about painting but that's another another catch i would say sorry sorry didn't have to interrupt but that's the other catch is that i'm sure like both of you i think uh, every artist has a sort of photographic memory of um art marks you know and uh, i have a very good bullshit detector for knowing when I'm not really painting for myself, you know. So when it gets more expressionistic, I, I, can, I can tell who I'm basically, you know, stealing from, you know, whether, you know, whether, whether it is someone like Beckman or Kokoschka or Sheila or what I can, I just think, oh, you know, I can, I can see what you're doing here. You know, a little bit of Bonnard, a little bit of, you know, Soutine, whatever. I'm just, I'm just kind of hiding it. Uh, and I can just tell, I can just see these marks are not entirely honest. So that kind of leads me back to a slightly tighter work. Um, were you kind of a rebellious child slash teenager? Uh? Uh, as, as a small child, I was a little bit delinquent. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, and I got that, I got sent off to boarding school and that was, uh, I was cured of that. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> But I, a friend of mine gave me a nice compliment. He said I was like the, the best 
best disguised anarchist it ever met, you know, because I tend to dress like an English country vet gentleman most of the time. <laughs> I, I, but I, I am subversive. Um, yeah. You know, my, my personal theory is actually the more rebellious someone is by nature, like rebellious, yeah. subversive, etc., the more likely that they're like art wise, they are to, to wind up a realist. And I'm not sure why, but yes. I, I actually yeah. think that the obedient kids like all wound up doing conceptual something. Yes, better. yes, that's interesting. I bet the YBAs were at, like, if you talk to them about their, you know, early years, were probably much more likely to follow the rules. It just all of a sudden yes. the rules were, you have to do this, this stuff that kind of like provokes people or, whereas if you talk to anyone who went to, yeah, like, I think a lot of these Florence Art Academy people probably had quite a past Yes, well, if there is an act of rebellion. I would say someone like Justin Mortimer, he, that would have taken a lot of courage because he, uh, he was a little bit younger than me and uh, he would have been dealing with a lot of conceptual installation art. And to be a painter would take a lot of courage and, and rebellion. It seemed like he just didn't care. He was like, yeah, there's all these other things that were going on, but mm, I was really more interested in this, so I just did it. Yeah, yeah. Talk about it being a bit uphill, though, like a lot of resistance yeah. to what he was doing. Yeah. Julian, you said something that struck me. Actually, I like that whole thing about Van Gogh and painting Frost. And a lot of that sort of like made a lot of sense to me. And then you were talking about the audience. And, and so we do have to... If we're musicians, we have to make a beat that people's body will move to. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like in, in art, that in fine art, it's a little harder to figure out what people, what resonates with people. And if you're just doing that, you're sort of losing yourself in it. But if you're just painting to no one, in some ways, that doesn't seem to make sense either. How, how do you work out that balance, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, what I've done is um, the work I do for myself, which, uh, as I say, sort of remained private for a long time, that morphed into the, into the narrative work, uh, which is, so in fact, I started as a kind of storyteller in the painting, and about 12 years ago, I really heavily... Um, got back into that work. And what I did there, I had a lucky break that uh, there's a, a kind of visionary museum director down in Greenville, South Carolina. They have a huge Andrew Wyeth collection in this museum. They, and he said, he asked me if I would do a show based on uh, the life of a folk singer. Um, and I, but then we, we discussed it and I, uh, I said, could I do some paintings based, based on these Appalachian ballads, which had come over from where, you know, the, the Scot Scottish borders, where part of my family's from. Sure. And I found that that culture of honour really interesting, you know, um, because it still de so determines uh, American culture and, and, and American politics at the moment. You know, it's a very, uh, it's very interesting, that division. It's the sort of individual as opposed to the, you know, it's the, yeah, it's the sort of it's the southern country song type thing, you know. It's 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 on all of that, and it's you can see America divided now, really along political lines, um, over that. So, um, 
So that's what happened. I realized that I could I could do work for myself, but I could uh, I would be able to keep it, but I would I had an audience suddenly to show it in museums. So that's what I've been doing since then. My own work is done for museum shows, and I just um, been able to keep most of it, which is which is good, you know. Um, I got a piece of advice uh, from Wolf Kahn yep. years ago that, that, you know, it was just almost impossible piece of advice for an artist, uh, but it's a good one, which is to never sell your best work. Um, because if you have it all available, you know, it will be extremely useful for shows in any kind of non-profit situation, you know, museums and things like that. Uh, it's, it's very, very hard. Of course, most of us sell all our best work for years and years and years. You know, it's probably all that sells, but um, it's a great piece of advice. Yeah. And it's so rare. I mean, like, if you're lucky to get into museums, that's such a hard border to cross. But with that, do you think that it gives you a little more freedom to paint just what you would like to paint with the, with the constraints of a museum piece rather than a gallery piece? Yes, it does exactly. Um, and so, I, you know, each each time I pick a narrative thing, I sort of decide which which is the best way to handle it. Um, yeah, um, it's it varies. I had a funny situation happen where I had done uh, two or three different southern narratives: um, uh, the, the the murder ballads, and then a, a whole series based on this one. Um, character, sort of minor character, who was caught up in the Napoleonic uh, colony in Alabama. So I sort of took this, this one woman and, and treated her as though she was a, you know, sort of a major figure in, in the world, which in fact, she was just the mistress of one of these generals. Um, so I, done, I did a whole series of those, which was slightly, a slightly different painterly approach, a little bit more, you know, what can I say? Sim- sim- more symbolist, I would say. And then after that, I uh, I was friends with a poet here, an African American poet, Glennis Redmond. And I, I, I made, it turned out to be a mistake. <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about it, but I thought it would be nice to do a narrative. Since I'd done these narratives about white people in the South, I thought it'd be a nice thing to do an African American narrative. Um, that was a bit of a mistake. I think, you know, that's what they call cultural appropriation. <laughs> I didn't realise it. A couple of again, people. A couple of you know, people said you might want to think twice about this. But uh, so in that case, I, I I had someone build these very wonderful frames based on kind of like stations of the cross, uh, European stations of the cross, but also. Um, uh, African American churches in the South, and I, I was going to do that. The stations—it's it's an amazing story I discovered that, that the um, uh, the enslaved people believed that uh, there were mermaids in the swamps around, the, you know, around Charleston and down on the southern coast, and that that's why when a mermaid was captured, that's what what brought the hurricanes across the ocean. She would beckon them. For, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, the, 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 the slaves believed that in, in these simbis, which were water spirits in the Congo, 
And, and when they were brought to America, they, they thought the Simbis were there in the creeks and rivers and swamps as well. So um, there was actually a riot in Charleston where uh, they believed one of these mermaids was held captive in a pharmacy. And it had been raining for weeks, so they thought she'd beckoned a hurricane from Africa to come and punish the place. So, so I thought it was a great story to do a whole series about. Uh, as it turned out, I realised, yeah, uh, it was not a, not good timing at all. <laughs> so, so my act of trying to be broad-minded turned out to look like cultural appropriation. So I, I, I changed that. I, instead, I did a recording of... Glenis was going to do a poem for each station, and then we were going to take them to different museums. Okay. Show, and she would perform these poems, one for each station. Um, so instead, we decided to just do a record produce a record of her poems but uh, where, yeah. where can you find the record uh i have them all <laughs> <laughs> i i put i i designed the label simbi records and it was kind of nice that that was kind of exciting i got mm-hmm. them a local place does final pressings and so oh. i work and they you know so now technically i'm a record label as well so that's kind of fun but um yeah so i, I put some in different museums in museum gift shops okay that's, that, so that I got it out there in oh, some way. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's her, and she's reading her poems on them. She's reading her poems. That's cool. So, yeah, so we got it out there. It's all good, you know. I, I just, um, I, I mean, obviously, I mainly do painting, but that was a, that was a slight diversion. Anyway. You mainly do painting, but you actually recently published your first novel. That's true. That was a that was a diversion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about that diversion a little bit? Yeah, that was, um, you know, well, during the Great Recession, um, 2008, uh, you know, being an artist, it was hard for me uh, to keep hold of my house. Um, So I ended up, um, you know, having to let that go. But uh, um, uh, the novel really was about the way that all of us took in tenants to survive the recession. And I wanted to, we had very eccentric tenants. Asheville is full of eccentric people. And I, I wanted a novel that was a comedy, you know, and it was just a way to look back on that time and, and see the see the humor in it, you know? So it was, it was quite therapeutic in that respect. Um, yes, and I, actually it's interesting you mentioned that because a friend said that um, my novel it was the first time they'd seen me in my work. And this is, yeah, this is an, interest, an interesting thing. We, I think we talked about it earlier that, um, yeah, I, uh, I've been told in the past my work doesn't show much of me. Um, and when I was told that, it really, it really was interesting about my novel. It made me look back on my work and wonder, really wonder about that. How much of myself is, is visible in the work? Uh, so much 20th century painting is subjective. Um, you know, if you think back to, well, everyone, certainly Picasso and Matisse, and it, because they're all experimenting with style, they tend to keep the work very close to home. You know, it's it's the interior, the still life, whatever, the self-portrait. Uh, and my work has not been like that. 
uh, as much. I suppose it, 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 I, I don't know. I, 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 I would say that I've painted my, my experience, you know, I've, I've always felt that any, any artist is, when, they, when all of us, when we can look back on our work, it's, it's living proof that we've lived, you know, what Aristotle called the, the examined life, you know, whether your life's been a struggle or not. If you've painted your whole experience, you've, you've lived a full life. But uh, apparently some people didn't see much of me in my work. I'm trying to figure out that exact metric. Uh, is there not, like, if you're not literally painting yourself, you know, like a portrait of you into your paintings, uh, is that how much of you they want to see? Or, you know, or could it just be your hand or, you know, or, or your foot? Um, I'm trying to figure out what people even mean by that, because to me, your, your know, paintings have actually have felt very personal. I know. I think it's, I think it's mixed up. I got this from people in England in particular. And I think it's somehow they mix, it's something, it's mixed up with style. It's mixed up with your, your, your stylistic technique as a painter. So you're visible through the way that your style is different from the real world. So they would say, the people that critiqued me on this, that someone like a photorealist is entirely removed from their work. You know, whereas someone like, I don't know, Modigliani, uh, he, he is visible in the way he painted. I think that's what they're trying to say. Not, not that Modigliani is painting his hand or his foot or his self-portrait. So, so basically, you are how much your painting differs from reality. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I know. I, I'm not buying that one either. I, and like, we I, were I'm not buying that either. No, because you know, that's like saying that Holbein, got, you know, Van Eyck, or all these wonderful painters, um, or Vermeer. You know, for God's sake, so, they're in their work. So we were talking about kind of Rod Penner earlier, and like, so some photorealists yes. are kind of extremely, like, at least to me, they feel very cold and. But someone like Rod Penner is not. He's just really kind of, he just really loves those abandoned hotels. And yes, this yeah. is what he is. Like he's in those. Yes. Yes, that's right. Just like you're in yours and Modigliani's in his. Like, like I. Exactly, yeah. What a weird thing to ask of someone or, or to measure art by. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. It's, I think it's because because I've been in a different country and because I've explored a lot of it, um, I do feel that certainly when I paint certain things for the first time or things that have not really been painted, you know, some things I've painted have not, there's not really, they've not really been painted before. Um, I feel that there's a, an obligation almost to, to not be too expressive and to be quite, to be extremely realistic. You know, it's the first few times I've painted something. Um, yeah, it's a different thing. Back in, you know, back in England, I was told, um, it's, it's funny rules that people put on art, isn't it? Strange. Um, I was told it's not what you paint, it's how you paint it. <laughs> it's just like a mantra. You know? <laughs> it's, not, it's not what you paint, it's how you paint it. And, and that doesn't apply to everything. You know, sometimes, like with Rod Penner, uh, it is what you paint. You know, that is the first thing. It's not a, a hard and fast rule. If you are living in the south of France and you're painting, you know, uh, 
Aix or somewhere. And, and hundreds and hundreds of people have painted the exact same view. I can understand why you would say it's not what you paint, but how you paint it, because that's your only obligation is to you know, somehow make it different from all the previous renditions. You know, maybe I even agree. It's not what you paint, it's how you paint it. You can make anything magical and personal. Just Yes. But yeah. does the specialness have to come from how much it differs from reality or, or how closely it observes reality? Because there's, you know, there's some people who would argue that as well. Like, and and yeah. I feel like maybe both are right or both are completely wrong. I, I think it's both. I think one can honestly say they're quite right to say it's not what you paint, it's how you paint it. But you can also say uh, that subject matter is extremely important. You know, um, yeah, so I think it's both. I don't think it's one or the other. Um, but I, that was, anyway, the only reason I say that is because that was a sort of mantra that backed up this concern they had that my work, myself, my, my person wasn't visible in my work. The, then they used the dreaded word illustration, you know, which is another, <laughs> another one of those words. I don't know, this is particularly popular in England. You know, it's the worst thing you could possibly be called. Your work is looking a little bit illustrative and you think, oh, God, yeah. That's the go-to for people who don't want to... People don't want to see representation. That's yeah, the yes. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's mm-hmm. only recently that that stopped. You know, that conversation stopped happening, or that stopped being kind of an, you know, a low-level insult. When when I was an undergraduate, yeah. too. Yeah. Actually, my oh, one yes. of my best professors. He was um, he was Scottish, actually. But yeah, he would say, uh, "Did right. it? Uh, yeah, you don't want to become a mere illustrator, do you?" <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, he, he was, he was an incredibly smart guy, actually a very good artist, but that was like when he wanted to really hurt me. Yes. Like he'd call it illustration. Yeah, I think the horror came, it came out of the, the violent reaction against Victorian painting. I think particularly, uh, I think even in America, but particularly in England, it was a violent reaction against the, the pre-Raphaelites and the se- sentimental art that followed that. And, and it, it became a phobia in England. Uh, but of course, if you go back just a couple of centuries, I mean, it gets ridiculous. You know, you can't imagine the Pope saying to Michelangelo, you know, that's looking a little bit illustrative, you know, <laughs> <laughs> looking like an illustration there, you know, Giotto or, you know. Yeah. It is an interesting question that is so uh, difficult to put your finger on. Um, What's that saying like about pornography? You know, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when I see it. You know, yes, like, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. when does something turn into something? And it's like, there is something really beautiful in a lot of different types of art. So it can't just simply be, you know, the way it's painted or what it's being painted. But it is, there is this intangible quality that can be miraculous and I have no idea how to describe it or what it is when I see it, you know? Yes, yeah, I know. Well, uh, this is the age of the illustrators anyway. I remember when I was in art school, every year there was this huge book, like the phone book that would come out and it was the, the world's best illustrators, you know, and we used to just pray that these people never discovered 
the art world, the world of fine art. It's like, because these people are way too fucking good. You know? <laughs> and if, if they discover us, we're done for. And, and, that, and that has happened. That has happened. Right? You know, the computer came along and every great illustrator joined the ranks of you know, the fine art painters. And you can see it all over Instagram. It's no surprise to me that there's a sudden vast amount of talent out there because it was always there. Um, so it was um, always there, but I feel like it was sort of like, like one of the things you get taught, at least in a lot of art schools, is like, yeah, it's there, but we should look down on it a little bit. Yes, yeah. Um, and yeah. so now finally it's, you know, like you're right, it's just there to enjoy or to learn. Some of these people are teaching. The, yeah, know. yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you realize how many people have these incredible chops at painting and uh it's so funny when I was in art school that yeah, that's when David Hockney. Um, did you ever see his book on uh, secret knowledge? Secret knowledge, yeah. Yes. And uh, it was a little bit cheeky. I thought he uh, he basically said things like you know, well, I, uh, you know, Ang or whatever painter. He said they um, he sort of said. They, they must have used a camera obscura because I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we all thought, well, you know, he's right, because David Hockney's the only man in England who could draw. Because we've sort of been told that at uh, art school, you know. Uh -huh. uh, uh, yeah, and that's, that one has been broken. That myth, that myth is history. <laughs> Julian, what type of art uh, do you look at the most? What are these wells of inspiration you go to? Mm, that's a great, great question. Uh, I used to have a, well, I, I still do have a, a big library of art books. And um, for, oh, for years and years, what I would do is just, I'd paint for sort of an hour or so in the studio and then take a coffee break and just look at some different artist and, you know, just go through those books. Um, uh, I don't actually get, much inspiration now from looking at paintings. It's more from uh, a film, cinema primarily, and uh, some, some photography, southern photography. Um, I, I, I'm very interested in southern folk art too. I, I love that kind of the, the, the mindset behind southern folk art. Um, that idea of just finding a way to make something and, and get it out in the world, show it to people for sure, but you know, just to, to uh, not so much, just to create art that ne not necessarily has to sell. But, um, but yes, probably, probably cinema. And, and what, what films would those be? Well, it's probably, you know, the usual offenders. Really. It's probably like Tarkovsky would be in there and Kubrick and... Uh, yes. Uh, oh, I don't know, uh, Kurosawa, uh, Sergeant Ray. I mean, just this, there were so many of them, you know. I, I, yeah, I'm a completely Luddite. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I, I feel like it's such a great inspiration for learning how to design images. You yes, know? yes, exactly. I'm like you. I'd almost look at a, a still frame from some of those great directors more so than a painting. There's something yes. so captivating. Oh, yes. I know. It's... It's very interesting. I just saw the other night a film. I, did you ever see the film Personal Velocity? Personal Velocity, that sounds so familiar. Yeah, it won the Sundance Prize. It, it was made 
by Rebecca Miller, who is uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's wife. Okay. And she wrote the novel first. It's three stories about women. And then she made the film. Uh, and I, I just watched it a couple of nights ago. And uh, it was, I remember that was a huge inspiration for me to start the narrative work again. I thought, is there any way I could do a painting that, that could possibly have that? Uh, combination of power that, that cinema has, where you've had a story and then you have this moment and there's a certain shot and sometimes there's music and there's just, you know, there's that moment that will, you know, reduce you to tears or whatever. And, uh, I thought that, you know, very few, if any, pieces of art have ever moved me to tears, you know, but cinema can do it quite easily, you know, great cinema. Um, it's a really hard challenge, you know, yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I cry pretty much all movies. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think because I don't watch that many of them. So as a result, like they still have, you know, you're right. So I look at so much art that I think you just get kind of like immune to it. Like even the really, really good art, like you, you assess it on its very, whereas I don't watch that many movies and therefore anything can make me cry. I think I watched part of Homeward Bound with my kids the other day. And I was yeah, like, ah, yeah. That, yeah. That moment when you think the dog is not going to come home. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think I, I think I mentioned earlier. I'm very, um, I'm much about sort of controlling. I, I use the word algorithm, but controlling the things that influence me. And I've I've learned over the years that you know, as much as I'd like to learn about certain subjects, if it doesn't stick, there's a reason it doesn't stick you know and so uh i am a, a real luddite i i don't have wi-fi at the, in my home or at the studio I, I, this is why i'm using this friend my friend's cabin because they've got great wi-fi for this interview wow. but I, I i still get the netflix discs oh really yeah and uh because i can get any of those films you see so we, they have an I, incredible I, film library i am just i don't get the disc I have the Netflix service like for my laptop. Yeah. And I'm miserable with it because you're right. Like the stuff I'm I enjoy is on disc. I don't really ever find anything to watch on Netflix, you know? But I used yes, to get I know. so much out of those discs coming in and out. It was amazing. Yes. Yes. I'm afraid they're actually getting rid, you know, they're slowly chucking them away. It's infuriating. Because oh. I think there's only about four hundred thousand of us left in the country. Well, less than that, who still get the discs. You know what? I'm going to sign back up. I'm going to lose my regular Netflix to go back to the disc. It's yeah. so much better. It is good. <laughs> I, 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 I think if I watch my life, apart from motel, you know, if I'm staying in a motel and I accidentally turn on the TV, I think the last commercial I watched was about 1998. I, get, I, <laughs> I, I just, I refuse to accept this, you know, barrage of uh, information I don't want. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I yeah. well, I tell you, I'm watching commercials like crazy now, but it comes from a good source because you can watch great art documentaries on YouTube for free. Yeah, yeah. And I've been using like an exercise bike and watching those while I do that. Yes, they come with the commercials, and I get so paranoid off these things because it's all about 
what are you eating? Are you feeling yeah. it? You know, like, I was like, yeah. oh my God, I can't eat that anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not feeling great. Marshall, just pay like five bucks a month and get yes. a YouTube I, account I, with no cut. <laughs> come on, it's, it's, it's going to be worth it. it. It is actually worth it. I have a friend uh, and uh, uh, he and I both have the uh, YouTube account premium. It is worth it because, because it does start sending you stuff that really... Uh, you know, really is what you know up your alley, and you don't get you get no commercials. So. And those commercials make me absolutely paranoid. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think in some ways like that, that old uh, adage, I guess that you are what you eat. Do you think if you consume, um, I don't know, maybe it's as simple as things you're interested in. You know. Uh, Rather than watch whatever's in front of you, get the disc and put put those in. Be intentional about what you put into your mind. Mm -hmm. Do you think that would make you a better artist ultimately? Someone with more to say, a little sharper of an instrument. Yes, I think you know. You know, I mean, one thing that helps is to have a a difficult childhood, but. Many of us, have, I had perfectly fine childhood. Yeah, but I think a difficult childhood is a good starting point. Or, uh, but I think it is important for artists to work at becoming more interesting and you know being interested in the world and yes, going down those rabbit holes and really working at that. That's one thing I will say. For when I was at art school, they had a great film club, and they were always pushing books on us and poetry and. It was very good for that. Um, it's really important to have that external thing from, from the other arts and from history to, to keep, because you've got to, you know, as, this is my, as I said, my concern is when I left art school, they didn't tell us how to make a living and they certainly didn't tell us how to keep making a living until you're 70 or 80. And you don't want to uh, start on being an artist and have be a success for a decade and then, you know, become a sort of, one hit wonder. It's you know, it's too. The problem is once you've set on the path of being an artist, it's you know, it's it's very very hard to feel that you can't continue. You know, it's it is, it is a pleasant profession. And uh, <laughs> by the way, I I feel like I disagree with you about the unhappy childhood because we've been. I mean, neither me or Marshall, I feel like, are particularly reliable people, and yet we've been running this podcast for. I don't know, a few yeah, years yeah. now. And we've had all sorts of people on there. And there doesn't something that I've observed, our only criteria is we pick people who are good artists. And some of them have talked about having like a totally magical childhood. Yes. And some of them seem to have had it really rough. And there seems to be no correlation between like whether or not you had it you had a tough or easy and how good of an artist you became. Yeah. But something I kind of read recently that's maybe related to that is that, and I'm not sure I believe in it by the way, but just just kind of an interesting thought mm-hmm. because it goes against something that you know we've we've all been taught is apparently a happy childhood and a happy or unhappy adulthood have no correlation at all. So you could basically be an unhappy child who grows up into, you know, unless you have like a really traumatic childhood, which which is different, you could be an unhappy child who grows up into a happy adult and or a happy child who grows up into, you know, an unhappy adult and vice versa. It doesn't seem like there's any correlation at all. 
No, I, I didn't mean it to sound like that. I, 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 threw, I, just, I threw that in there, but I just listened to the Springsteen uh, autobiography, and he yeah. said that he just loved you know, everything that was bad that happened to him as a kid or an adolescent. He said that it all helped him become a rock star. So that's the only reason I really threw it in. It definitely is not a prerequisite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's not a bad thing to be a bit of an outsider as you're an ad- adolescent, but I think most artists are. So, um, yeah. You know, something I, I also realized recently is that I thought that most artists are and most of the people that we, we know have felt like outsiders as adolescents. But now sometimes, like, I moved back to the town that I, you know, grew up in, so I sometimes run into the, the kids who were the popular kids in high school. Yeah. Um, and all of them, like, every single person I talk to has memories of that time as just being incredibly confusing and uncertain and all of the people it seemed like it seems like everyone felt felt yes, like an outsider during true. that time. Yes, that's very true. Yeah. You said, you know, we were talking about being an interesting person. <laughs> as <laughs> Yeah. And I I don't know. I I, I two two kind of thoughts came into my mind. Like maybe I believe that's part of the artist's job. I believe that's part of building trust with someone, uh, with an audience, you know, like, because I think that you're asking so a lot of someone to pay attention to you. you know? Yes. Yeah. And I, I don't think that should come cheap or easy. And I wonder if what we've been talking about, what's that intangible quality in, in work and stuff? if maybe it's coming from interesting people, mm. you know, because it's like, we're talking, you know, it's not necessarily how a thing's painted a hundred percent or what you're painting a hundred percent, although those are great factors, but I feel like so many artists to pay attention to are interesting, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that doesn't I- come easy. Not for nothing. I've, spend a lot of time with a lot of super uninteresting people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, 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 it is important. If you look at the whole history of arts, you, I would say that's a defining feature for sure. Oh. Yeah. I, By the way, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So <laughs> that seems to be my job. And that is your job, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I just spent 10 days quarantined with a three-year-old. So if it wasn't my job before, before that, it is now. <laughs> I, I would actually posit that there's plenty of incredibly good artists who are not interesting people at all because their interestingness goes into the art. And like, oh, but then they're interesting people if it goes into the art. Um, are they? But they might not be that interesting to talk to. Well, we're not just talking about a conversationalist. We're, I mean, maybe the right, work right. of art. Yeah, but like, yeah. you, you, I mean, I would say that that falls neatly into an interesting person if they're creating and like, if they're saying something through their work, you know? Um, I don't know. I, I just recently bought some Coltrane albums and like got really into thinking about how he died at 40 and like mm-hmm. that musical journey he went on. And it's like, so if his last albums, the ones that got really experimental came out, the first thing he did, you wouldn't really pay that much attention to him. You know, he had to foster some sort of relationship with his audience 
that they were able to go on that long journey with him. And he was pretty interesting the whole way through, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Julian, speaking of like, you're someone who's been experimenting your whole life, whether it's, you know, painting, it's living in this house, it's finding abandoned buildings, it's, you know, it's, it's writing a book. Where do you see things going from here on in? What's your life like right now? Oh, that's, yes. Um, well, as, as I say, I was really thrown for a loop by that um, observation about whether I'm, pre- uh, that I was more present in the book than I was in my work. Uh, yeah, that, that really startled me. I, I think what I've realized is that I've been doing a lot of small work recently, and that might have been affected slightly by social, social media, uh, Instagram, just, you know, that slight pressure to produce images, you know. And I, I do like working small, but I think uh, I'm going to basically uh, do larger paintings ahead uh, on the painting front, this is. Um, and sort of just as a way to actually, it's almost like I'm going to look at the work I've done so far. I'm sorry about that. It's bizarre. I normally get no emails and I have emails coming in. I hope those pings aren't too loud. Anyway, I, um, I plan to just basically do larger works of what I've already been doing and almost uh, interpret my own paintings. Uh, so that's, that's on the painting front. And on the writing front, um, I'm, I'm, I am working on another book, which is actually set in the art world back in the 80s, back in London. So, mm, that's yeah, yeah. So that, that will be fun. So do you feel, like I think uh, uh, the smartest of us are ones who take a, a comment like that said, you, you know, about you are more yourself in the writing or however that was said to you. Do you, and, and people who take whether that's a comment or criticism or anything and kind of reckon with it to some degree, do you feel like you want to see more of yourself in your work or do you feel satisfied with, with the amount of yourself in your work? Well, yes, I think after reflection, I feel there's, there's enough of myself in the work. I think I just need to double down and emphasize what it was I was most drawn to in the work, you know. Perhaps, perhaps that's really what it's about. I think, I think I've covered a lot of ground. I've probably done 2,500 paintings over, over the years. So I've covered a lot. I, you know, I could easily just go back to what I've done and use those as starting points for sure. So uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm in search of new subject matter particularly. Um, yeah, if someone was able to say, "Say we're gonna, we would like you to make a film," I'd love to do that. I, I, I always, I've always wondered if, you know, maybe I was best suited um, to be something like a film director. And the reason I say that is because I do love storytelling, and I'm not sure, honestly, if if the world of fine art, uh, the art world, is the best, you know, forum for that that kind of work. I still think it doesn't really fit. I may have to take some of my narrative themes and revisit those in writing 
yeah. Uh, the film directing thing, though, I, w- I would say I don't think I'm suited for, the, for that. If, <laughs> I, I think film directing requires an enormous amount of skills and a huge amount of patience with being financially dependent on you know, all sorts of outside forces. So, yeah, painting's been great for that. There's an image um, of yours. I think it was fairly recently you had posted it. Uh, COVID dreams. Yes. Do Do you feel like that's kind of directing in a way, something like that? I thought it it was. I realized something about that. I, I started doing some paintings because people were ta- everyone had strange dreams, so I did start doing some paintings about those dreams and. They were kind of making a statement, really, that uh, the underlying statement, I think, was saying that the, the, the planet is the issue. The environment is the issue at hand. Uh, you know, and that's, that was you know, really the, the greatest issue. That's why there's a polar bear that features in a couple of those paintings. People, suppose the girl is going to a prom with a polar bear, a polar bear sort of just being, you know, patient and, you know, dealing with the fact he's going to become extinct. <laughs> and has this young woman there with a mask and everything. Um, uh, years ago, someone told me, uh, I, I was explaining that I didn't like magic realism, particularly in literature or film, and they said, that's because you're a magic realist. And I think they were right. <laughs> I think they were right. (laughs) So I think the surrealist side would be something to explore, perhaps. Not not as much as I did in the COVID dreams series, but but a little bit. Yes, it's in there. I like those paintings. I I I like you know because like you have these really beautiful lush landscapes. And then, like seeing those, it's a it's a bit of a I don't know, a surprise. To yeah, me. yeah. I really like seeing them. What I loved about narrative painting from the start is it's very close to um, to writing in that you're much more likely to surprise yourself with the final image. You know, what I do is find very interesting spots that almost seem like a like like a film location scout. You know, a, a spot that really feels like something should happen here. And then just exploring, adding figures or taking them out, just working back and forth. And, and you suddenly end up with a painting that um, you never could have imagined before you started. And that, that to me is very close to the way, to the way I write. I don't pl- I plot a novel carefully beforehand. You know, I just let it flow. So. So that's how you did that. You you just sort of were putting things in, taking them out. All exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's a lot of fun. Is there any advice that you would have for anyone who's listening who wants to end up like it, just like Julian Davis? No. Uh, who kind of wants to spend the rest of their life doing what they love um, in various forms, which is what you did? Uh, well, as I say, I think that you know, it's the thing apart from learning one's craft is to. Um, to truly be, be, you know, to pursue your 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 own most personal interests, you know, and uh, just get the work out there. And I think social media is really fantastic for that. But it's you know that thing of exp- 
pursuing your interests through what you read and what you expose yourself to and just really focusing intensely uh, on your own work and, and not getting caught too much, which I think so many artists do, certainly representational painters, which is this, this getting caught up in, in, um, in copying and perfecting a te technique, you know, uh, you, you, you pick an artist like Velasquez or someone or Sargent or whatever, try and work like them and get close. And then the next day you think, can I do that again? Or can I get better? Or, you know, uh, try, try not to do that too much, you know, but really to focus intensely on, on one's, one's most personal self. Um, thank you so much, by the way. Like, thank you so much for talking to us about I, everything. I've really enjoyed it. If you ever end up in our part of the world, kind of like, you know, the, which is either Boston or New York, depending, you know. Yeah, yeah, I would love to, I would love to, yes, it'd be great. Yeah, as I say, it'd be fantastic to meet you all. Yeah, yeah this is great. Such, such a pleasure. And I get down to the South every now and again. So. All right, well, Asheville is a beer town. <laughs> meet Nick and I and we'll get together. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Art Grind podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind and we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.